you pray with me? Let's pray together. Our glorious Lord and Savior. Oh, praise be to your name. There is no other like you. There is none besides you. There is none who can compare with the greatness of who you are. We thank you that as we gather in this place, we gather as those who are amongst the redeemed. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you have given to us, not because of anything that we bring, but purely because of your mercy and grace. We are grateful for this weekend, for the things that we have learned, for the fellowship we have enjoyed. I pray that this would not be a weekend where what we have discussed stays here, but by your Spirit, would you drive it deep within our hearts, and would you continue your good work of conforming us to the likeness of this glorious Savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. My wife loves to read. In fact, she's one of those sorts of people who has usually six or seven different books on the go all at the same time. It's one of the many things that we have in common because I also love to read, although I confess I'm more of a one to two book at a time kind of guy. Uh, while we have this similar love of reading, especially when it comes to fiction, we have two very different genres. I'm kind of more of your action thriller kind of guy, and she's more of your um, sort of period drama piece. Uh, we also approach uh, a fiction books in particular in two very different ways. You see, my wife is one of those people, and you probably know some of these, who when she's looking for a new book, she goes to the bookstore or she browses at the library, and she starts at the back. And she reads the last few pages, and it drives me crazy. Because she wants to decide whether or not it's worth her reading the book. Now, to me, you have just spoiled the sense of discovery, the sense of adventure. But if you ask her about why she does that, she'll say it's because when I get to the chapters in the middle that are either a little confusing or where the plot is twisting in such a way that I find myself becoming anxious, I need to know how the story ends so that I can keep going in the chapters in between. Now, I loathe to admit it. That is a really biblical perspective that my wife has, even though I'm still not going to approach a novel that way myself. But there's a sense in which as we gather for this session of this great retreat tonight that what I'm hoping that we'll be able to do together as we open God's Word one more time is to be encouraged and exhorted to keep on going through all of the chapters that may remain between here and there. I have been given perhaps the unenviable task of speaking to you on the return of Christ. And some of you are perhaps salivating over that, but before you salivate too much, I am not going to unmask the Antichrist. I am not going to spend time laying out timelines of what may or may not happen. In fact, I suspect that by the time I'm done, you may not even know what eschatological view I hold. It's the correct one, but that's okay. It's not a big deal. Um, because, you see, while those sorts of details often fascinate us, I want to suggest to you that that is not what the biblical authors were seeking to communicate when they speak on the matters relating to the return of Christ. 
they have something far more significant in mind. And something that is meant to both sober us and challenge us and comfort us. And so my prayer is that that is what we will experience even here this evening. It's also true that uh, as I'm going to be speaking on this matter, that, that I'm probably choosing a passage that it might at first seem a little surprising to some of us. It's maybe not the go-to passage on the return of Christ. But rather, what I want to do as we think about the last things, Christ's return, I want to consider some of the last words of the Apostle Paul. Because as he prepared to face the end of his life, he was able to speak about that which the Lord had entrusted him to do and his completion of it with such a confidence that it ought to lead us to ask, how can we live now in such a way that at the end of our lives we might have the same confidence? And so, if you have your Bibles with you, would you join me in the New Testament book of 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4, as we discover together how in light of the fact that Christ is coming again, we can have that kind of confidence. 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to them, wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. As Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, penned these words in this, the last of his epistles that we have in the Scriptures. He writes, of course, as we know, to a young pastor by the name of Timothy, who is also a faithful traveling companion, ministry partner of Paul. As he writes this, he writes perhaps within just a matter of months of his being martyred for the faith. And this is a passage that is probably familiar to many of us, and it certainly makes sense that as he is speaking to Timothy, this young pastor, he would give this charge that we see here. This is a passage that also uh, still in many of our churches, probably pastors and elders, uh, as they come before the church, are given this charge. But I want to suggest to you that what we see here is not for those in vocational ministry alone. It is for all of God's people. And he begins in this section in this chapter that we've just heard read. And in essence, he is saying, Christ is coming again. So get down to the work of the gospel. Paul gives a charge here, setting out the obligation to the work that has been entrusted, first to Timothy, but also to really, I think, 
all believers. Uh, in the previous chapter, in, in, uh, in chapter 3, we have, again, the very familiar passage that most of us can probably recite from memory. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, before that, he has, he has spoken to Timothy, and he said, um, while there are people who would seek to lead you astray, do not be deceived by them, but remember the things that you have learned, even from youth. And then he goes on to say specifically those things that are true, and those things that are true because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for correcting and for training, for teaching, for training in righteousness. And so, uh, uh, it's immediately after that he goes into this. And so, when in this passage he gives this charge and he says, preach the Word, he has something very specific in mind. The Word to which Timothy is to preach, that he is to hold to, that he is to set forth, is this God-breathed Scripture that is always useful, always effective, always doing its work. He sets this as the work of the gospel, that Timothy is to continue forward. It it, it is desperately needed in our day-to-day as much as it was then, because what we do in every environment of ministry that we find ourselves in, whether our, our, our task is the public proclamation of the gospel, whether it is personal evangelism, whether it is the discipleship of our children, whatever aspect of ministry it is to be founded on the Word. But I kind of get ahead of myself here because while the instruction is to preach the Word, back in verse 1, he gives something very important, and it's a charge. And, and the charge that he gives says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and when we think of that, this is an astonishing statement. I mean, imagine this. He, Paul is saying to Timothy, before the very presence of God the Father and Christ the Son, I have a task that you must do. There is a weight that comes with this. But he doesn't, just, he doesn't just call this authority, this weightiness in this charge. He continues and he says, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. It's interesting here, he gives this charge, he lays it out, he calls in a sense as witness the very presence of God the Father and the Son, and then he combines these two things, the fact that Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, these two always go together, even as we talked about on the panel earlier this afternoon. The appearing in this passage is referring to the return of Christ. And what he's saying is, because Christ is coming again, get to the work of the gospel. And he is stating this so that Timothy would not only understand the weighty responsibility of his ministry, but as we're going to see over and over again, so that he would do all that he does while keeping Christ's return front and center. That he would remember the last chapter throughout all of the chapters between. This ought to sober us, and it ought to motivate us as well, Because as Paul reminds Timothy to do everything that he does in light of the fact that Christ is coming again to judge the living and the dead. So we ought to do all that we do before the presence of Christ and in light of His coming return. We ought to do the work of the gospel, therefore, as he says, in season and out of season, when it feels comfortable and convenient and when it doesn't. 
when the chapters in the story are going along smoothly and we can make perfectly perfect sense of the plot line. And when we're in a chapter and we're like, I am so confused, I have no idea what's going on. We still keep on doing it in season and out of season. Why? Because it is always profitable. Uh, why? Because uh, the, the word that we hold forth will always accomplish its purpose. We are to preach the word. We are to put it forward. We are to do all that we do for the glory of God, even reproving and rebuking and exhorting with complete patience and teaching. I think, by the way, this is very interesting. Here, uh, with the way that he strings these together, what we see is that even when we are correcting and rebuking others, we're always to do it in a way that's teaching. Never point out error just for the sake of error. Always call people to truth. Sometimes in the church, we're really, really good at pointing out error. Sometimes we're even really, really good at rebuking people. But we need to do it with patience and teaching. Don't just tell somebody what they're doing wrong. Show them how to do it right. But after giving the charge, what he seems to do is, in a sense, give a warning to Timothy because it's not always going to be easy to do the task that we're entrusted with. And so we might say that Christ is coming again, but until then, you will be tempted to slow down or even to abandon the work. Don't. Notice here um, in verse 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We don't need to say a whole lot about that because if your eyes are open, you see that happening. We live in this world. It's not surprising, but here's the danger. While the faithful servant of Christ is to remember that his master has commissioned him to a task and that he is coming again, there will be increasingly times when it seems like nobody cares, when it seems like nobody's interested in sound doctrine. And as a result, there will be times because people are just chasing after what they want to hear that we are tempted We're tempted when we see others who don't care to become lazy in the work to which we have been called. And lazy in our own response to God's Word. Or when we see that people are chasing after the things that they want to hear, the temptation is, well, maybe we just change our way up a little bit and we do the things that they want us to do. But he says, as for you, Timothy, as for you, brothers, be sober-minded, that is, keep your head, endure suffering, that is, face the opposition that comes from others, do the work of an evangelist, that is, keep on holding forth Christ as the only means of salvation. Uh, the, The message of the gospel that declares that salvation is by faith alone, through through grace alone, in Christ alone. Fulfill your ministry. The implication here is straightforward. What he's saying is, before the presence of Christ, who is coming again, we have been entrusted with with gospel ministry, and no matter who listens to us or who ignores us, No matter who stands with us or who stands against us. No matter how fruitful or how barren it may feel. Fulfill your ministry. Pastors and elders, fulfill your ministry. Sunday school teachers, small group leaders... Fulfill your ministry. Husbands and fathers, fulfill your ministry. Servants of Christ, be careful that you don't make excuses. Fulfill your ministry. Because you do it before the presence of Christ who is coming again.
And then in verse 6, uh, we see Paul, in a sense, giving a, a further reason, if you like, to Timothy as, as to why he is giving him this charge. In, in a sense, he is saying to him, um, step up to the plate, Timothy, because my ministry is at an end. So we might say that really what he's saying here is that Christ is coming again, so keep him in view until the race is through. And and Paul tells us right here, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. That is, he is clearly aware that as he sat there in this Roman prison cell, that there is no pardon or release coming, that he is under the sentence of death. And he refers to himself here, he says, he is being poured out as a drink offering. Now, a drink offering was one of the many offerings that was part of the Old Testament sacrificial system. But something that's quite interesting about uh, the drink offering, in fact, two things specifically that we see time and time again when we encounter it in the Old Testament. A drink offering, by the way, was usually wine, and it was, uh, it was to be poured out over the lamb or over the bull that was being offered as a burnt offering. But the two things that are fascinating, each time we see a drink offering, the first is that a drink offering was never to be given in isolation. It was never an independent offering. It was only ever given in conjunction with this burnt offering, and so that the lamb would be sacrificed, would be put on the altar as a burnt offering. And what the drink offering did was it was poured over the top in order that a pleasing aroma might arise from the altar. The second thing that's interesting about the drink offering of the Old Testament, to which Paul is alluding here, is that most of the offerings that were given by the people were then portioned out. So some of it went to the altar for the sacrifice, and another portion of it went to the priests, to the Levites, to support their families. But with the drink offering, anything that was given for the drink offering was to be poured out in its entirety. None was to be left over. There was none to be held back into, in reserve. It was poured out to the last drop. And that's how Paul sees it. Adding nothing more to the finished work of Christ than to be a pleasing aroma that draws to the Lamb and holding nothing back, utterly devoted and utterly spent in service of his Lord and Master. It's a beautiful picture. He says, Timothy, my life is already being poured out as a drink offering, and the day of my departure has come. Then he goes on to say, with confidence. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, some people look at this and they think there's three different types of imagery here, one being military, another being athletic, another being religious. I think actually uh, the, the language seems to suggest that all three of these are grouped together in an athletic imagery. So much so that Earl, in his commentary, proposes a paraphrase that says, I have competed well in the contest. I have finished the race, and I have kept the rules without disqualification. Because, you see, he then goes on to give this athletic imagery because he says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of of righteousness, that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. And this crown is, 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 is emblematic of the, the, the crown of laurel wreaths that was given to the victor in an athletic contest. This crown of righteousness is, is one of five, if you like, crowns of reward that we find uh, in, the, in the New Testament. It seems that, that uh, the, the crown is righteousness itself. But Paul here states confidently that this awaits him. And not only him, but that he will receive it at the return 
of Christ along with others who have loved His appearing. Now, I want to suggest that if we kind of reverse engineer a little bit what's being said here, I think we find that the implication is that the crown is given for having finished the race, but the reason that he is able to fight the fight, to run the race, to keep the faith, is because he has kept his eyes on Jesus and his appearing. Because you see, in verse 1, the charge is rooted in the certainty of Christ's return. And in verse 8 here, we see Paul's successful finishing of the race and receiving the prize is rooted in the fact that he has not ceased to love Christ's appearing. And so, despite the opposition, despite the hardship, despite the persecution and the difficulty, and now even his impending death, it is the last things... It is Christ's return that has enabled him to persevere and to keep Christ first in all things. We might put it this way. Remember the last things so as to keep Christ first thing in all things. This truth, of course, is not just found here in this passage. Jesus taught His disciples the parable of the master who was going away on a long journey for a long time, and He entrusted to them talents. And He gave them to His servants that they might use them and then give account of them at His return. And, of course, the implication of that parable is that everything from the time of the master's departure was to be done in light of the certain knowledge that He was coming back again. So, brothers, we are to live in light of Christ's return. But more than that, we are to love His appearing. But how do we do that? What does that look like? It's one thing for us to say that everything that we do ought to be done in the certain knowledge that He is coming again. But how do we love His appearing? How do we keep that focus in view when there is so much stuff going on all around us day in, day out? Well, as I said earlier on the panel, the, the return of Christ is no fringe doctrine. It is front and center. It is essential, and it occupies a significant percentage of the teaching of Jesus in the gospel accounts, and it is referenced in nearly every New Testament book. If we are to love His appearing, the first thing is that we we must believe it. That sounds simplistic. That sounds even ridiculous, and I hope for you, it does seem, well, of course we believe it. But you know what? There's many who name the name of Jesus Christ who do not consider this to be an important doctrine and would not actually believe it. But what, we, what do we believe? What does the Scriptures teach us? What, what must we believe about the return of Christ? Well, we must believe that it is certain We must believe that His appearing shall be physical and bodily. Interestingly enough, the word that we see appear twice in this passage in 2 Timothy 4, the word that is translated for us appearing, is a word that the Apostle Paul uses six times throughout his epistles. In five out of those six times, we see the same meaning as we find right here in this passage, speaking of the return of Christ. The sixth time happens to be also in 2 Timothy, but in chapter 1, verse 10. And there it is clearly pointing to his incarnation. And so I want to suggest to you that in the Apostle Paul's mind, he considered the incarnation of Christ, the taking on of flesh, to be connected with the return of Christ, that it will be physical and bodily in the same manner. We see other examples in the New Testament that point to 
this. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, uh, we see that the resurrection of Christ is spoken of as being a first fruits of which we in our coming resurrection will share. So uh, that our imperishable and eternal body uh, that we will receive at the return of Christ is fashioned after Christ's resurrected body. Why is that important? Christ's coming will be physical, but more than that, it will also be visible and public. Christ is coming again, and we must believe what the Scriptures teach about this. Matthew 24, 27 says that as the lightning flashes from one end of the sky to the other, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This will not be done in secret. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7 declares that every eye shall see Him. Do you believe that He's coming? More than that, His, He will appear with judgment and reward. We so in this here in this passage, in, in verse 1, it says, He is coming to judge the living and the dead. And in verse 8, we see again that He is the judge and also the one who gives this crown of reward. Revelation 22, some of the last words that we find in, this, in the corpus of Scripture. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Do you know that he's coming again? Do you believe it? His appearing will be unexpected. The New Testament is replete to references with this. Matthew chapter 24, uh, we don't have the time to go all the way from verse 36 to 44, but we see that over and over. We see the imagery there of the fact that he will come like a thief in the night. Paul also uses that same imagery. Paul talks about the fact that when people are saying, peace and safety, it will be then that he returns. It will be unexpected. His appearing will be in victory as he comes to reign. You see, when Christ returns, and He is coming again, He will not come as the babe in the manger, but as a conquering king. Revelation chapter 19 vividly paints this picture for us as we see the power and the majesty and the judgment with which He returns. And even in fulfillment of the prophecy from Daniel that Jesus even referenced Himself before the Sanhedrin, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He's coming again. Brothers, His appearing. His appearing will be glorious. Will be glorious. First Thessalonians In chapter 4, for the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Brothers, His coming is sure. Do you believe it? Don't get wrapped up in or turned off by the details that we don't fully understand, but know and rejoice in that which through the history of the church, believers have known and declared and rejoiced in as being sure and nearer now than when we first believed. But we are not just to believe in His appearing if we are to love it. We are to love His appearing by preparing for it. One of the great challenges that we face when we're talking about eschatology in the church is that we misunderstand and at times, dare I say, misuse many of the passages that speak about it. But, you know, I cannot think of a single passage that speaks of the return of Christ that is there for information alone. 
in every instance that Christ's return is spoken of, it is so that we might know how to live in light of His coming. In Matthew 24, 42, as He speaks about His coming, Jesus says, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Then in the very next passage in Matthew 25, he tells the parable of the ten virgins, and he ends that parable by saying, watch therefore, for you neither know the day or the hour. So we are to stay awake and be watchful. You know, we all know what it's like when we have people coming to our home and we're trying to prepare. If your home's anything like mine, um, you go into a little bit of a cleaning frenzy in preparation because you know that people are coming over. We had an incident uh, recently where we had invited a group of friends to come over on a particular Saturday, and we still had some time. We were kind of thinking about how we were going to do some things, but we still had some time. The only problem was that one of these families that we were having coming over got mixed up, and they showed up a week early. And, and we open the door, and they're like, hi, we hope we're not late. Oh, we hope we've not been waiting for us. And they come into the house, and we're kind of like, okay, nothing is ready. Do you know how embarrassing it is when somebody thinks that they're there, and then they realize, oh, man, I, I kind of came at the wrong time, and you're not ready, and I'm embarrassed because we're not ready for you. It, it, it's plain embarrassing. And here I am, I'm trying to make light of it, and I'm, I'm, I'm sort of doing things at the same time. And I'm like, okay, we have some moldy cheese somewhere here. Let me find that for you in order to serve for you. But, but the point is that we are to be prepared. We are to love His appearing by being prepared for it. And Jesus repeatedly tells us, be ready, be watchful, be awake, because it's not just going to be embarrassing when the Lord returns and finds you in your basement playing video games, and it's like, what, what, that was today? No, we want to be those who are about His business, and so we prepare for His coming we prepare for His appearing by being about the work that He's given us to do. This has probably been said by a million pe- preachers over the years, but it's worth repeating. If you knew that Jesus was returning tomorrow at 7 p.m., what would you spend the next 24 hours doing? Paul was able to say, I am being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Why was he able to say that? Because he lived every moment in the expectation of Jesus' return. We long to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in the little things. Come enter into the joy of your master. It was said to those who were busy about His work at His return. And and the Lord sets that before us so that we would be watchful, so that we would remember to love His appearing. We prepare for His appearing also by pursuing Christ-likeness and purity. I think it's really interesting. In Second Peter, out of all of the things he could say, he talks about the fact that, hey, this stuff's going to burn. He says, all this stuff is passing. Chapter 3, for example, he's talking about this. And then he makes this statement, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the, and hastening for the day, uh, uh, the coming day of God? And then a few verses later, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. Therefore, He's not just saying, oh, by the way, I want to give you some theological information about Jesus returning and what's going to happen then. He's saying, I want to remind you of this so that you may be diligent 
to be found by Him without spot or blemish. 1 John 3, 1 through 3, again, speaks of this idea of, of, of the return of Christ as being something that purifies us if we have that hope. We know that in the presence of Christ, we will be made complete. But the biblical authors seem to have this idea that we, in the grace of God and in the power of the Spirit, who is at work sanctifying us, we ought to make it our ambition to look as much like Christ now so that when He comes, we would not be ashamed. You know how it is when you meet somebody that you've not seen in a really long time? There's either two approaches, right? The one of them is like, oh man, you haven't changed a bit. You look just like you did like 10 years ago. And the other is like, whoa, dude, (laughs) I hardly recognized you. I don't know exactly how this works. But by God's grace, I pray that I would live in such a way that when I see you in the streets of gold, in the celestial city, and we bump into one another, that we'd be able to say to one another, hey man, you're looking good, but I tell you what, you haven't changed a bit because you look so much like Christ, because you were so diligent to be like Him as you waited for Him, that you didn't waste a moment in pursuing godliness. We not only learn to love His appearing by believing in it and by preparing for it, but we learn to love His appearing by longing for it. You know, we develop a deep longing when we dwell on the wonder of His appearing in our thoughts and in our speech and in our prayers. How long, O Lord? And in our songs, as the cry of our heart echoes, when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and lead me home, what joy shall fill my heart? And I shall stand in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God, how great thou art. Do you long for his appearing? We develop a longing when we learn to see the brokenness of this world in light of the gospel. And when the stories about children being gunned down on the streets of Chicago. And when the news about young girls being dragged into sex slavery. And when the report about the group of people who starved to death in a locked storage container in which they were trying to be smuggled over the border doesn't fill us with vitriol towards whoever the political opponent is in those matters, but instead causes us to cry out, how long, O Lord? How long? Maranatha, come quickly. We learn to love His appearing when we find ourselves standing before the casket of a loved one or a friend, and we're reminded again that our only hope in life or death is Christ alone. It's Christ alone. And when we long in the midst of that loss and that pain of loneliness and brokenness, to fall on Him for comfort and to do so in the certain knowledge of the fact that soon in His presence there will be no more tears and there will be no more pain and there will be no more sickness and praise God, there will be no more Do you love His appearing? Do you long for His appearing? Does it give you hope 
and comfort when nothing else can? Does your life look distinguishably different because you are a follower of Jesus Christ, because you love His appearing? Because when nothing else makes sense, those chapters in between are confusing and causing anxiety and fear, and you don't know how it's going to work out. And your friends and your neighbors who don't know Christ don't know how it's going to work out. You can say, but I do know who's going to work it out. And I know that He's coming again. We learn to love His appearing. Finally, when the deceitful luster of this world no longer enamors us. In 2 Timothy 4, there the problem that Paul warns Timothy about was the readiness of people to reject the truth because they were so attracted by the things they wanted to hear. So, Christian, some of us even here tonight, are in a place where we cannot love Christ's appearing because we love other things so much more. Some of us love eschatology and details about trying to figure it out with charts and with books and with studies on it, that we love the idea of Christ's appearing more than we love Christ and His appearing. Some of us are lazy. We know what it is that Christ has called us to do, but we have lost a sense of holy urgency in the work. We have become like those who are going on a journey, but have become so comfortable at the first rest stop that we have no interest in going any further. Some of us are overwrought with the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and our love of sports and our love of money and our love of success and of prestige and our love of sexual gratification literally blinds us from the true longing for Christ. In fact, there's a sense in which the idea that He is coming back fills us with both a sense of fear and indignation. Because we love what's here so much. For some of us, our bucket list, while perhaps filled with good things, is keeping us from loving His appearing. It trumps our longing for His return, and we excuse our spiritual lethargy with trying to convince ourselves, yeah, I'm looking for Christ's return. I just hope that He holds off a while because there's still things I want to do or experience or accomplish as if anything that this world has to offer could even compare to the glories that are revealed at the coming of Christ. Brothers, Do you love His appearing? Or do you need to repent of something that is blocking its view in your life? This weekend retreat has been all about Christ over all things. But how do we keep Him in first place? How do we keep on keeping Him in the place that He rightly holds in all the universe? How do we live with a confidence that will allow us to say, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Look to His appearing, because He's coming again. Remember the last things, so as to keep Christ as first thing in all things. Our Lord and our God, how great You are.
Lord, as we gather here tonight, we confess that we so often forget that our hope is in a Savior who is coming again. Lord, we would ask that you would forgive us for the times that we are so enamored with this world that we have failed to love your appearing. Lord, just as Paul charged Timothy so many years ago to live in view of your presence and of Christ's appearing, So, Lord, would you keep our eyes fixed likewise on the fact that Christ is indeed coming again, that we might find hope, that we might find comfort, that we might find confidence, and, Lord, that we might find ourselves reminded day and day after day that there is coming a day when we will stand before the presence of our glorious Master, giving account for all that we have done. And because of your grace, because of your mercy, receiving a crown of righteousness, not because of anything that we have done, but because Christ, the righteous one, will lay it upon our brow. Lord, teach us to love your appearing. And even as we go from this place back to our homes, back to our churches tomorrow, back to our families, and into the week that lies ahead, would you enamor us with the splendor of Jesus and help us to keep our eyes fixed on the clouds, ready and loving your appearing. And Lord, may we be found faithful in this till indeed you come again or call us home. For the glory of your name we pray.